Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been so gracious enough to reveal something of your plan of redemption from start to finish. Lord, even just of the the small amounts that we are privy to, to understand and to see, even, even that probably goes beyond what our mind is capable of fully comprehending all the glorious wonders that are contained within it. Lord, we pray as we look this morning at what it is that you have laid out as the future hope for those who have come to trust in Jesus Christ. That, Lord, that you might place in us a deep longing to know you more and have an excitement about being able to see you face to face. The one who loved us so much that he sent his son to die on our behalf. Lord, encourage us, teach us, build us up to love and serve you through the ministry of your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm not going to ask people to give actual feedback on this, but I imagine there's probably been a few times when you look at Sarah, you look over at Steve, and you think, what on earth does she see in that guy? <laughs> then, you, then your mind really starts to tick over, if you're the sort of person who thinks about these things, and you think... Maybe there's stuff about Steve I don't know. Maybe there's some really hidden gems. Maybe he's secretly rich. He's not. Maybe it's because Sarah has the technical ability of a senior citizen and she needs some technical help. Maybe it's because Steve cooks a pretty mean steak. Maybe it's the benefits of a husband who's a member of the St Kilda Football Club. Well, I can assure you that it's none of those reasons are the reasons why Sarah decided she would say yes to marry me and live the rest of my life with me. It wasn't about the perks. For some inexplicable reason, she said yes because she wanted to spend the rest of her life with me. Today we're looking at what is the future hope for Christians in Revelation chapter 21, 1 to 22, 5. And before we do that, I want us to think about this question. As you think about the eternal future hope that awaits us, what is the thing which you are looking forward to most? I wonder what your answer to that question would be. What would be the top of the list, the thing you are most looking forward to? And the reason why I ask that question is that the thing which you desire the most, what you hope for in your future, will shape what you pursue right now. Let me give you an example. If I said that in this life, I plan to become a main player in the St Kilda Football Club, and I rang rang them up and said, where's my phone call? Why haven't you got me on the team? Now, if they knew anything about me, their answer is going to be something along the lines of this. Steve, you're 44, you're overweight, and I haven't seen you play AFL in the last five years. It doesn't make sense to say, this is my future hope, if there's absolutely no evidence of a pursuit of it now. So as we look through these chapters, I want us to think about what is 
our future hope and what is it that we are pursuing now in light of that hope? A lot of our focus is going to be in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 21 where it says, He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. So as we work our way through these chapters, we're going to look at what does it mean to be thirsty for God? What does it mean to conquer? And as we work our way through, we're going to see that wonderful thing, that the dwelling of God will be with mankind. We see a beautiful artistic and graphic picture of the beauty of the bride of Christ, the river of life. And then we'll wrap it up as we ask that question, what are we thirsting after now verses 1 to 8 are probably some of the most loved verses in the book of revelation if anyone's read anything in revelation these will be parts that they're very familiar with and most prominently is verse 4 and it's easy to see why i can't imagine a single person who would not find this description attractive when it says He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Who wouldn't want a future like that? No death, no sickness, no sadness, all of it gone. And we'll return to those wonderful promises in a moment. But as we think about the context of where these eight verses of one to eight fit within, they kind of serve as like a bridge with what's come before as well as what comes afterwards. What's immediately come before in chapter 20 verses 11 to 15 is a description of the future inheritance of those whose names are not in the Lamb's book of life, those who have not turned and trusted in Jesus. And spoke about them being cast into the lake of fire. Whereas verses 1 to 8 now turn and say, look at the future glorious eternal inheritance for those whose name is in the book of life, who have turned and trusted in Christ. But it also connects with what goes afterwards. Verses 1 to 8 is kind of like a summary statement, and then verses 9 through to chapter 22, verse 5, is like an expanded and, and graphical portrayal of that beauty of that bride. In this vision, John sees a vision of a new heaven and a new earth. Back in chapter 20, it says, at the coming of Christ, the old heaven, the old earth had fled away. Now, some people have different perspectives of what does it mean, a new heaven and a new earth? Does it mean one entirely taken away and another completely new one put in its place? Some will say it's a complete renewal of the existing one where everything that has been stained by sin has removed And it will be completely renewed and restored. Because there are verses in Romans and Isaiah that kind of lean that direction. Now I'm not going to settle that debate on that particular topic. But I'm personally inclined to think that much like our resurrection bodies seem to be ascribed in such a way which they are recognisable but perfected, that the new heavens and earth most likely will be something recognisable but perfected. 
Now, as you read here that the, the sea was taken away, you might think, that's a deal breaker. I love going to the beach. Why, why is there no sea? But you need to also put yourself into the mind of John, writing in the first century, very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, very familiar with the nature of apocalyptic writing, where both in Old Testament and throughout the, even the book of Revelation, the sea has often been described as a picture of chaos, of evil and darkness. Back in chapter 13, that beast we saw came out of the sea. So we're not saying there's not going to be any water. It actually describes water that will be there. But a perfected new heavens, new earth, where there will be no chaos, no darkness, no evil. But not only does he see a new heaven and a new earth, he sees a new Jerusalem, which he sees described adorned like a bride. Doesn't that sound a bit strange? Jerusalem, we know presently now, it's it's a city in this world. It speaks of a new Jerusalem, but a place that is a bride? Is it a place? Well, everything in Revelation chapter 21 hints at new Jerusalem not being a place, but a people. Like it associates with a bride in verse 2 that we've just read. But in verses 9 to 10, it says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit into a great high mountain and showed me the holy Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God. He says, I'm going to show you the bride. He shows him the new Jerusalem. Verse 2, he says, I see the new Jerusalem adorned as a bride. He says this new Jerusalem is the bride, is the wife of the Lamb, is the people of God of all time. Hence why the writer of Hebrews can say to the Christians he's writing to in the first century, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Or Jesus himself in Matthew 5, 14, after saying, you are the light of the world, he also says, we are a city on a hill. His treasured people amongst whom he dwells. Then from the throne of God, we have this loud announcement. The final fulfillment of something which we've seen as a pattern through the scriptures from the beginning to end. That God will dwell amongst his people. We see it first in the garden. We see it through the the tabernacle, through the temple. We see it in the coming of Christ. It says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. We see it in his presence in the spirit amongst his people in the church. And now we will see that in all of its fullness in verses 3 and 4. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Now, can I come back to that question I asked at the beginning? When you think about the eternal hope that awaits you if you are trusting in Christ, What is the one thing at the top of the list that you are most looking forward to? 
And as you think about that, I want to challenge you, if your answer comes from verse 4, I want to challenge you to think differently. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that verse 4, insignificant, just scribble it out of your Bibles. I'm not saying that it's wrong to long for those things. I'm excited about those things. It fills my heart with joy at the possibility of seeing, experiencing those things. But the question was, what are you most? What is the number one thing that you are looking forward to? What are the things that you are longing for the most? Because if your answer comes from verse 4, then you're saying what you value most are God's benefits more than God himself. Now, if I was to use the example of of my wife, Sarah cooks a really mean green curry. Imagine if I said, the only thing that I'm looking forward to that day we get married, she's going to cook me green curry. I can't imagine that would have gone down too well on the wedding day to work that into the vows. If you're answering verse 4, it's not because you're thinking too highly of those things. They are wonderful things. No death, no pain, no sadness. But it may be, if they are your highest priority, that you're not thinking high enough of God. And if that's the case, I'd encourage you to pray, God, help me see something more of your awe and wonder that your benefits might be secondary to knowing you, to seeing you for an eternity with you. Then a voice which comes from the throne, the very voice of God. This is important. It says, write this down. This is faithful and true. And what is faithful and true? He says, it is is finished. These things which have been spoken about, it is finished, it is done and dusted. Which might seem strange because he's talking about things future. How can they be done and dusted? Now we've seen this already in Revelation, we see it in other parts, even in the Gospel accounts as well. But when you have all power, all authority, whatever you plan to do can be good as done and dusted because nothing can hinder your plans, nothing can stand in your way. We've already said what we desire in the future will shape what you pursue now. And he said, it's done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Who will drink from the springs of the water of life? Those who believe, those who have faith. The way it's worded is, those who are thirsty will drink. Why doesn't he just say like what we expect him to say? Why don't we say, all those who believe in Jesus, why does he have to say those who are thirsty? Well, in a sense he has. By saying those who are thirsty, saying genuine belief is one who thirsts and hungers after God. It's not the person who who goes home with the meat tray prize from the Bible trivia night who is the one who's guaranteed these things. It is the one who has recognised they are a sinner. 
seen the wonderful provision in Christ. They have turned from their sin to Christ and they are hungering and thirsting after him to them. Not just one who knows all of the right answers. To them, those who thirst for him will drink from the springs of the water of life. And because they are thirsty for God above all else, they are too the ones who will conquer. Haven't we seen that throughout the book of Revelation, this, this repetition to those who conquer? It describes those who see and value Christ so highly, understanding that he is sovereign over all, who cling to him despite the circumstances around them, knowing that he is in control, knowing he is worth following, and that he will come true on every single one of his promises. These ones will be with God. They will drink from the water of life. But those who thirst for other things, in verse 8 it says, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. Exactly what we saw described back in chapter 20 verses 11 to 15. These two passages back to back say there are two future eternities. Those who turn from this sin to Christ and trust him and thirst after him, they're going to have this wonderful inheritance we've just seen described in verses 1 to 8. But our natural state isn't to turn towards Christ. Our natural state is actually hostile to God. We want to live our own way. And in that state, chapter 20, 11 to 15 cast into the lake of fire will be our eternity one enjoys the presence of God and all of his goodness and the other will experience nothing of his goodness but only his wrath but that's what Jesus came Jesus came so that he would bear the wrath of God for sin on our behalf his death on the cross wasn't because he was naughty it says He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That we might be delivered from the wrath that is to come. Now, if you're worried, thinking, man, we're at verse 8, there's a long way to go. The majority of the sermon was in those first eight verses. Verses 9 to 27 pick up again this picture of this bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem but describes the same thing in a beautiful, graphic and symbolic way. Think of the way in which Paul speaks of the church in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, So that he may present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It's what Paul describes as being future. John has a vision of in chapter 21 and he describes it for it in the most beautiful of ways. Speaking of that completely perfected, holy bride of Christ, the believers of all time who have been completely sanctified using those imageries of precious stones and metals. But not only is the beauty and the value of them described by way of the stones and the metals, but also the completeness that every single one of them is described in the way in which the dimensions are described. We see completely same dimension, 12,000 stadia, wide, high, 
deep. With the 12 greats of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 foundations of the apostles of Jesus Christ. He wants them to know that this church is full to the brim. This is the exact dimension set for all time. Not a single one whom God would call to himself will, will fail to get to that point in time. To a church who is being tempted in every way to compromise their faith, they are being given this glorious picture of the completeness, the entirety, not one missing of God's people gathered around the throne in the new heavens and the new earth. But there'll be no temple there. According to verse 22, God and the Lamb are its temple. When Jesus came, he saw himself as being the temple. He said of himself, something greater than the temple is here. But you think, why would there be a need for a temple? Well, there's not. That's why Jesus is the temple. In the Old Testament, people came to a temple to experience God, to go to where his presence and his glory dwelt. But in this future eternity, we will be all in the presence of God. We will see him in all of his array and all of his splendor. Imagine how jealous the Old Testament saints would have been to hear this description. In their day, one priest could enter into the Holy of Holies once a year, and even then, only with the blood of a lamb. Even then, he couldn't look on. He had to go with smoke so he could see not even the glory of God. Yet every single one who has God's children will stand before him, see him in all of his glory and know all about him and see him exactly as he is. Now that's just got to blow your mind, doesn't it? To think that even what the high priest saw, nothing in comparison to what we're going to see. I don't know how imaginative you are. I can be quite imaginative. But I can guarantee the grandest picture that you can come up with of what our eternity is going to be like is not even going to be a smidgen of what that reality is going to be like. And just as Isaiah had prophesied in chapter 60, the nations and the kings would come to that light. If you got excited by the promises of verse 4, no sadness, no death, no sickness... And that's only got to intensify with verses 25 to 27, where it says the gates never need to be shut. These things which are promised to, there is absolutely no threat, there is absolutely nothing that can steal or take away these things from being an ongoing eternal reality. I mean, after all, how could it? All of God's enemies have been cast into the lake of fire. All you have is a perfect God and his saints which are being perfected around him. Nothing unclean ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And because there's nothing but the life-giving God and his perfected saints, you expect nothing but an abundant life to be described there, we see in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 22. Now, I've got to admit, there are times when I think, I wonder what it would be really like to have been in the Garden of Eden. Now, it seems pretty straightforward the way it's described there. But I can assure you 
that if you are in Christ, what we will see in the new heavens and new earth far exceeds anything that Adam and Eve would have experienced. We've seen there's nothing evil or nothing impure. Nothing ever accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him. They'll see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. There'll be no need for the lamp or the sun for the Lord God will be their light and they shall reign forever and ever. So because there's nothing described here other than, than purity and flourishing. You've got the tree of life. You've got the river of life. Tree of life bearing fruit. You've got the, the leaves for the healing of the nations. And we will worship him forever. Now how often have you heard people say, I reckon heaven's going to get a bit boring. Or the new heaven's new earth. I need to take that vocabulary out of mind when we say heaven we're going to be on a new earth. But you hear people say, oh, it's going to be boring, we're just going to worship all the time. I don't think what it describes here is there is, there is a set mandated rule, you must worship under compulsion or else. I think we're going to worship all the time because we can't help it. I thought about it throughout the week. You know how you see description about the angels? forever around the throne of God, who've never seen and experienced the brokenness of this world, yet constantly, day after day, they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They just seem to be forever just in worship, in awe of being in the presence of God. They never seem to think, oh, it was good for the first couple of days, it's wearing a bit thin. And if they who have seen nothing more than the presence of God all, all of their lives can't help but cease to worship constantly, how much more those of us who have experienced the brokenness and corruption of this world when we get to see and be in his presence for all eternity. If social media existed, you'd be putting mind blown on a daily basis as a hashtag. So let's return to that question, what are we thirsting after? Now, I don't mean, do you feel like having a Coke after the church service? I mean, what is it you're longing for? What is the thing which you crave, which you really must have? What is it that consumes you, that drives you? And I can tell you, that's probably quite evident to everyone around you who knows and can answer that on your behalf. Is it for recognition, for success, belonging, love, relationships? The reason why it's obvious to everyone around you is that the things that we hope for will be the things that shape what we pursue on a daily basis. So what are we thirsting for? And what do other people see us thirsting for? It's not only about what are we doing, what is the message that we are proclaiming in the world in which we live? Let me go back to a wedding analogy again. Recently I just finished doing premarital counselling for a couple and there's something I say every time I do premarital counselling about the actual wedding day. I tell them what I believe to be is the best part of the wedding day. It's when you drive away. 
Now that might seem like a strange thing to say. The best bit of your wedding day, the day when you drive away, you must have had a dud wedding. Oh, we had a great wedding. It's not that you haven't had a great time together. It's not that you haven't loved seeing your bride turn up and she says, I do, and you're like, give a thumbs up to your best man next to you. It's not that you haven't had a wonderful party with all of your closest friends. But often on that day, your cheeks are sore from smiling for all the photos. You don't actually see one another that often because you're often around, everyone wants to talk to you because it's actually the first time of the day usually that you can have time to spend time with your wife and talk with one another. It's the first time when you say, this is our time, this is the beginning of us. Imagine if that day as we were driving away, headed off to the place we were staying that night, and I turned to Sarah and I was like, I wonder if this place has got a kitchen. Do you reckon you could whip me up one of those Thai green curries? I didn't say that. Just imagine the response. Like, what? Don't, if you're, if you're not married and you're going to get married, don't do it. Do you, do you want to marry me or do you want to marry Carrie? You can just get Uber Eats, you know that. You love that day because you get them. That's what you want. You wanted them. Not their benefits, not their gifts, not their blessings. You want them. Want us to imagine a people of God who are so desperately thirsty to have him and to have more of him, to want to spend time with him for all eternity, who as life pursuit is wanting to know him more, who want to see the God that angels are so in awe of that on a daily basis they can't help but worship in his presence. It's a powerful witness to the world around us, isn't it? when they see that you know the very same things that they're pursuing, but you see something of such grander worth that shapes and moves every aspect of your life. Not only is it a great testimony to them, what a great encouragement it is to your own soul to see and behold the splendor of God, to know the one to whom you belong to, Say, this is the one who sent his son to die on a cross for me. This is the one who himself will wipe away every tear. Remember the original hearers to whom John was writing? They were under great persecution. They were suffering physically for being Christian. They were making it hard for them to make a living by refusing to bow down to the emperor. There was the seeming success and pleasures of all the religions around them. Yet they clung on. They conquered, not because it seemed easier to follow Christ, but they saw the surpassing worth of knowing him and they said, regardless of what my life experience looks like here, I know I belong to the king of kings who's in control of all things and he is worth far more than even my very life itself. Now we live in a world where we experience hardship. Nothing like they did, 
and nothing like Paul did. But think about Paul's perspective, which isn't a song. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18, he says, So we don't lose heart. Like Paul has just described the way in which he's been persecuted almost up until death. He says, we don't lose heart. Even though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Doesn't that seem strange when we know what Paul endured? One time he was stoned and dragged out of the city because they thought he was dead. And he describes things like that as his light momentary affliction. Compared to the weight of the glory of God, he says, that's nothing. That's a light momentary affliction compared to the weight of knowing Christ, being in his presence forevermore. It is my prayer for you, it's my prayer for myself that God would help us to see something more of his awesome grandeur that we would see him in all of his greatness, the best that we can in this world, that we would long for him, that even the worst things that may happen in our life would just be light, momentary affliction compared to the weight of glory that that we look ahead forward to. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to know you more. There There is so much of your word that we haven't plumbed the depths of seeing your character and who you are. There's so much more of yet we are still to trust you with the things that we do know about what you have declared about who you are. Lord, we look forward to seeing you and being in your presence. We know it's not going to be a chore to worship you. We know we just won't be able to help it. As we gaze upon your beauty your holiness. May a vision of who you are capture our hearts now that it might transform the things that we pursue, the way in which we live. Keep us from being distracted by the seemingly attractive things of this world. But let us to see the far greater worth of the God who has bought us as a price that we might glorify you in our minds, our body, our thoughts, in all of our pursuits. Work in us to refine us. We look forward one day when you'll complete that work, when you'll present us before yourself as a pure, spotless bride. We thank you for that wonderful hope and we thank you that there is nothing that can steal or rob those promises from us. In Jesus' name, amen.